Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, Poetry Out Loud, the National Poetry Recitation Contest for Students has launched for the new school year, and Arizona has done quite well in the national finals of the competition in the recent past. This is the second year in which the Poetry Center will lead the contest as well as statewide efforts. So this includes administering the program across the state in collaboration with regional partners. Plus, a young adult mystery novel gives Nancy Drew a run for her money. I like writing for teens. I like the span of originality and creativity that teens expect from books. But first, Dylan Webster has released a collection of poems entitled Dislocated. He's a Valley native with an interesting story about how he developed a love of literature. I was actually born in Scottsdale, but I never really lived in Scottsdale. So yeah, I'm born and raised here my whole life. And then when I was in school up in Anthem, my family moved up to Anthem for a little while. And I went to Anthem Elementary there. And um, it was the English teacher there that like first talked about poetry. And so that's kind of what got me into it. I had broken my wrist. I couldn't really like do very much. So I started reading a lot and that's kind of how that started. That's interesting about your experience as a young student, because a lot of people don't find that they actually enjoy poetry until much later in life for numerous reasons. Mm -hmm. But what was it about poetry that attracted you? I really think the teacher deserves some credit, but it just was, I guess, you know, how it didn't sound like fiction. You know, fiction is just straightforwardly telling you a story. Don't get me wrong. Like, I understand now that fiction can be very poetic. But for me at the time, it was like, oh, fiction is very just telling you a story. And poetry is like engaging all these different senses. So I feel like it just felt different, you know, and I couldn't identify all that. That's what I was feeling, you know. And so then I just wanted to read more of that. I also felt like it was the only thing that could, in a brief space of time, talk about concepts that are really kind of hard to explain. But just talking about a feeling or an impression and then writing about, like, how do you describe that? So I think that's what really hooked me in. The title of your collection is called Dislocated, and there's about 60 poems in it. One reviewer Mm -hmm. wrote in the foreword that your poetry is deeply endowed with an intense passion for literature. And I feel like that's evident in much of the verse, which in many instances to me reads like prose poetry. When did you first gain a passion for literature just in general? Was it when you broke your wrist and you just kind of started reading? So my parents actually decided to homeschool me after that shortly before like high school. So I was able to work a lot, but then that also gave me a chance to just spend a lot of time reading. So I spent a lot of time reading Victorian literature. I stayed there for quite a bit of time and I read Dracula. And then after I read Dracula, I read, um, I read a smaller vampire book. I think it's Carmilla. And unfortunately, I don't remember the name of the author right off the top of my head, but it was written about a hundred years before Dracula. And it is also a vampire story. Anyway, I think that Victorian literature with the way they are just so verbose really helped me understand so that when I moved out of Victorian literature and started reading more contemporary stuff, it didn't feel as difficult for me. So then I was really able to soak up these concepts. And then ever since then, I just continue to read a lot. Um, Poetically speaking, I got really into like the, the confessional poets, particularly Sylvia Plath, but then, and then Ted Hughes is not a confessional poet, but I did really get into him as well. And so like, 
once I moved into the modern section, that's when I really felt that I could like change the way I was writing. And that's kind of how the verse has turned into what it is now. You're right. The story is called Carmilla. It's by Sheridan Lefanu. And there we go. I'm wondering about the title for your work dislocated because those of us who understand vampire fiction can sort of identify with the notion that a vampire is dislocated in a way from, you know, the natural life cycle. Is there any relationship at all? To the title of your oh, book? Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I've always been drawn to characters like that. Like you said, he's he's like dislocated, or they are dislocated from the natural life cycle. They're also, you know, that kind of the trope of the man out of time or the person out of time. You know, it's like they look young, but are actually really old. They look beautiful, but are very depressed. You know, just these kind of, I love juxtapositions. I think that's just my favorite thing. And anyone that I've ever encountered that really loves Victorian literature or or any literature beyond that, you know, just not contemporary fiction. And I like contemporary fiction, but I mean, people who are really into the old stuff. A lot of them always seem to have that same impression of like searching for somebody else that also likes that because they themselves feel a little bit dislocated. And so that's kind of what I was going for. As I mentioned, the book has over 60 poems, and it's divided into five sections. I wanted to ask you about your editorial process or the person who edited Mm -hmm. this and the decisions to subdivide it into five parts. Is there a relevance to the reason why you did that and the groupings of each poem? The publisher is... um they're like a really small publisher and they're very willing to like work with you. So I I had quite a bit of creative freedom in that. I just wanted to divide it into five parts to kind of evoke the feeling of like a classic five act play. So that's what I had in my mind. And then as far as the grouping of the poems, I was trying to create kind of a loose theme because it is a collection of poetry written, you know, at different times and in different moods and all of that. But I was trying to group them into a loose theme of basically like starting with disillusionment and then and then coming to a point where you start to see past that and you start to see something else instead of just getting stuck in this dark place or feeling dislocated as the title suggests you know you start to find a direction that you want to go down the loose connection in each see i want to call it act but uh in each part i still include like even in the last part that has the most positive poetry in there i still wanted to include the poem like the baggage and some of the other ones that still show that darkness is going to linger with you, but it, it doesn't have to be the dominant force. So that's kind of the loose theme that I was trying to go through. Take us out with a poem from the collection. So this one is probably one of my favorite ones. So I'm going to read Canticle. I saw a figure slogging through darkness as if through overgrowth, knee high, sloughing something off shrugging shoulders, a shadow among thicker shadows, like darkness contrasted by darker blackness, And at the end of this vision, the shadow figure dissipated, with hands reaching skyward, a lighter darkness, canopy overhead, and in the quiet of the blackness becoming a nascent gray, ascending higher, I heard the slightest whisper of singing. Now, for those who don't know what a canticle is, would you describe it as sort of a hymn or a chant? I mean, connected to the Christian Bible, right? Yeah, I mean, typically, I think uh, the Song of Solomon is sometimes called uh, canticles. But yeah, it's just, I'm pretty sure it's connected to the Latin word. And uh, that's why they call in, in like Roman Catholic services. I'm pretty sure one of the people that sings is called a cantor. But yeah, it just basically means a song. And it typically, it does have a slightly religious connotation. 
but that's another aspect that I tried to carry on throughout it. Like this, almost like a struggle with like religious connotations and you struggle with it, but also return to it at the end. Well, it almost suggests to me like sort of a metaphor for the prodigal son. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's exactly kind of what it goes on through here. And that obviously has a personal connection to me, but I think it also has a more general connection because in a way it's kind of like what we all are going through life as the prodigal children. Dylan Webster is the author of the latest work of poems called Dislocated. Dylan, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out a bit more about Dislocated and Dylan Webster on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, Poetry Out Loud, the National Poetry Recitation Contest for Students, has launched for the new school year. It's spearheaded in the state by the University of Arizona Poetry Center. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Whether you spend rush hour in the car or in the kitchen, All Things Considered from KJZZ and NPR is there. Get up to date while you're getting home or getting dinner started. Listen to KJZZ between 3 and 6 on 91.5 or the mobile app. In public radio, our mission is to be here for our listeners. And here can be anywhere. Your kitchen, the laundromat, out for a walk. Stream us live at KJZZ.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest, Hema Ornelas, works at the University of Arizona Poetry Center and also is the point person for Poetry Out Loud, the National Poetry Recitation Contest. We caught up recently to talk about the requirements of the competition for students in the state, and I began by asking her about her role at the Poetry Center. I am one of two K-12 education program managers and outreach specialists at the University of Arizona Poetry Center. And essentially, I help manage and facilitate a myriad of different K-12 educational programs for students and educators across the state of Arizona and really beyond. And among those is Poetry Out Loud. Well, thank you so much for your service. And yes, we certainly wanted to talk about Poetry Out Loud. But I I kind of have a, a question about your background. Do you remember when you sort of first discovered a love for poetry and and when you got serious about being interested in it? Was it at a young age? Oh, that's such a fascinating question. So irony of all ironies, my background is actually in the visual arts and education. So uh, a fun journey took me from California to Arizona, and I was so interested and appreciative of what the Poetry Center was doing locally here in Tucson that's when I was really, truly properly introduced to the wonderful world that is poetry. And that's where my love grew and continues to expand on a daily basis. Poetry Out Loud is the National Poetry Recitation Contest. And I think that, what is this the second year that the Poetry Center has led the statewide competition? Do I have that right? Yes, you are correct. So this is the second year in which the Poetry Center will lead the contest as well as statewide efforts. So this includes administering the program across the state in collaboration with regional partners and, of course, leading the statewide competition itself. Arizona has done quite well with finalists advancing to the national level from Mm -hmm. this state. What is involved in the state piece of the contest and how many qualifying rounds occur? 
So the program itself follows a pyramid structure, which begins in the classroom and progresses on to various stages of competition. So school-wide winners advance to a regional and then to the statewide piece and ultimately to the national finals. So for the state competition, regional winners prepare for three rounds of competition. Students select three poems to recite from the Poetry Out Loud online and print anthology, which contains over 1,200 poems spanning from the 1700s to contemporary poetry. And the selection requirements for those poems are threefold. One must be pre-20th century. One poem must be 25 lines or fewer. And the third poem could be used to fulfill the first two requirements, thus offering a bit of flexibility for the first two poem selections, if desired. Uh, The awards and placements are determined solely by the judges' scores based on the Poetry Out Loud evaluation criteria. So that is the competition in a nutshell. And for those who may be new educators or maybe who have always wanted to participate in the competition, how do they do so? Oh, great question. The best way to learn more about the program in Arizona is to visit the Poetry Center's website. We have a dedicated Poetry Out Loud webpage, and that can be found at poetry.arizona.edu. And then you'll go to the educational component for youth, and you'll find a Poetry Out Loud webpage there. And then you'll follow the registration link. And that's how we not only know who's interested in the program, but that's exactly how we provide regionally specific support to central, northern, and southern Arizona. So we have Poetry Out Loud coordinators dedicated to each of these regions, and they offer personalized assistance to participating teachers and schools. And then, of course, we also offer coaching support to students throughout the state. And for those folks who are new to Poetry Out Loud and maybe are unsure whether or not they'd like to join, this year we're offering information sessions for folks to learn more about the program. Again, you can visit our website to go ahead and register to join us at each one of those sessions. Hema Ornelis is K-12 Education Programs Manager and Community Engagement Specialist with the Poetry Center on the campus of the University of Arizona. It's such a wonderful building, and you're lucky to work there. Thank you so much, Emma. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. You can find out a bit more about the University of Arizona Poetry Center on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a young adult mystery novel gives Nancy Drew a run for her money. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. KJZZ is your source for news and analysis. The legislature cannot allow for early voting in all cases. Getting up to date on vaccines is critical since immunity may be waning for many people. The pandemic era protocol places broad restrictions on asylum. KJZZ is the Valley's news leader. Listen to KJZZ on air, online, and on your phone. You learn a lot from KJZZ. Now show off how smart you are with KJZZ Swag. The online store has t-shirts, hats, backpacks, and more. Take a look at shop.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest is the co-author of The Agathas. It's a young adult mystery novel written by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. The two wrote alternating chapters in this teen thriller, which invokes legendary writer Agatha Christie. I caught up with Glasgow speaking from her home in Tucson. I moved to Tucson when I was 11 from Pennsylvania, and I had no idea exactly what a desert was. And boy, I was very surprised when I discovered that there were cactus here and they were really sharp. 
<laughs> yeah, nothing like that on the East Coast for sure. You have a new young adult novel called The Agathas. This story is part of a series, as I understand, and takes place in Castle Cove. It's a murder mystery involving the disappearance of a character named Brooke Donovan. We'll talk about that in just a bit, but I'm curious as to why you decided to take on the young adult genre and specifically the mystery genre. I don't know that uh, writing books for teens was a deliberate choice as much as it's just one that, well, I found myself in because the first book that I wrote, Girl in Pieces, was about a teenager. And then when I got a book deal, they said, do you have another book about a teenager? And I said, well, I can sure write one for you. And so that's where I am. I, I like writing for teens. Um, I like the span of originality and creativity that teens expect from books. And as someone who had a difficult adolescence, I tend to write in my books about more serious topics. The Agathas is a little bit of a departure because that's not realistic fiction, which is what I tend to write. It's, it is a murder mystery. I wrote it with Liz Lawson, another author who wrote a book called The Lucky Ones about the aftermath of a school shooting. That's a fantastic and beautiful, timely book. And we decided that we needed to write something that was 80% fun and maybe 20% sad. It was the pandemic and we had just gone into lockdown. It was March of 2020. She loves mystery and I love true crime. And we decided to write a dual point of view book starring Alice and Iris. And Liz is Alice and I'm Iris. And the chapters trade from their point of view. And Alice is a popular girl and Iris is kind of a nerdy sheltered girl. They both have secrets of their own, but they're thrown together because Iris is assigned to be Alice's tutor. And Alice is an enormous Agatha Christie fan. And when her former best friend, Brooke Donovan, is found murdered, she and Iris band together to solve the case using tips and tricks from Agatha Christie novels. So the book is very twisty. The girls are not good at their jobs. That was very important to Liz and I when we were writing that they... They remain realistic teenagers and that they have no idea what they're doing. And they also have a lot of problems in the midst of all these clues that they have to put together in the seaside town of Castle Cove. We like to call the book a friendship story wrapped in a mystery because it is also really about how these two unlikely girls from different backgrounds come together and form a friendship. The character named Brooke Donovan, who disappears, the prime suspect is her boyfriend, Steve. Mm -hmm. But one of the central characters, Iris Adams, is not convinced that he did it. Tell me a little bit more about Iris and her connection to Brooke, as well as the story at large. So Castle Cove is a small seaside town dominated by an actual castle built by Charles Levy. And we based the Levy Castle in the book on the real-life Hearst Castle, which was owned by William Randolph Hearst. And Brooke Donovan is the great-granddaughter of Charles Levy, and she's the richest girl in town. And she is Alice Ogilvie's former best friend until she stole Steve Anderson from Alice Ogilvie, which caused their rift. Iris Adams has her own backstory of working with her mother at the bar where her mother works, They don't have a lot of money. They live on the bad side of the ocean where the beach is all rocky and a kind of crumbling apartment building. And she decides to tutor Alice 
Ogilvy so that she can get money. And then when Brooke's rich grandmother, Lillian Levy, comes to town and offers a $50,000 reward for anyone who can offer clues as to what happened to Brooke Donovan or even solve the case, Iris agrees to help Alice track down who did it because that money will help her escape her situation in Castle Cove. Iris has a backstory of domestic violence. Her father has recently been released from jail and he is semi-stalking her. So she has a lot of reasons to want to get out of Castle Cove very quickly. I'm curious about the writing aspect of this because we talk about that a lot on this program. I've never heard of authors collaborating in the manner in which you describe. I have had a writing partner, but we're in a room writing dialogue together, so to speak. How does that work where you're alternating chapters and alternating points of view and try to keep the language kind of unified for the age group who's reading this? Well, first, we set up a plan before we even started writing. At first, when we were talking about it, it was a lot of fun, and we were actually planting the seeds in the storyline as we would exchange text messages and emails. Liz lives on the East Coast. And so when we had enough to start making an actual outline for the book, like a spreadsheet, we did it chapter by chapter, what would happen and where the red herrings would be and what was going to happen here and what was going to happen there. Because you really, you have to plot out a mystery beforehand. I don't think you can wing it, which is how I usually write my other books. And so we agreed that Liz would write Alice and Alice's spoiled and petulant voice, and that I would write Iris and Iris's more introspective and somewhat darker voice. And you, when you're writing together, like we did, you have to be really flexible. We agreed that we would, um, whatever we were going to write very quickly. We didn't have a contract. In fact, we wrote it in secret and we didn't tell our literary agents or our editor. We share an editor <laughs> for our solo books. And that was, I think that that was, that was the number one thing that made the book such a joy to write and why people enjoy <laughs> reading it because we had this air of we can do anything in this because no one is watching us. We're yeah. just going to do whatever we want. So if I want Iris to suddenly jump from a balcony onto a trampoline and then bounce off it and run away in the woods, I can because I don't have an editor saying that seems unrealistic because we wanted this book to be fun and an adventure and for them to mess up and have to try over and over again. And, you know, we're really good writers. So we were able to keep our teenage voices very distinct from each other and intact. And I think very plausible. So Liz would write an Alice chapter in the morning and she would email it to me. And then I would write the responding Irish chapter and email it to her. And we did that every day for about two months. And then I found out that Liz is actually much closer to her Alice character than I had ever realized because she's quite devious because then I found out that she actually had told her agent and her agent had read the book and loved it and said, we need to show this to your editor right now. And I said, wait, what? <laughs> no, she's not going to take this book from us. Liz and I write incredibly sad, contemporary, realistic books that she's not going to take this weird mystery from us. But lo and behold, our editor said, oh my God, I can't believe the two of you did this. This is fantastic, and I love it, and I'm going to buy it. And we were like, what? That's amazing. 
That is amazing, and I love the story that it started out being a real-life mystery in a way, keeping it from your editors and literary agents, but then, as you say, not so much. I really appreciate your time. Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson wrote The Agathas, and we've been spending some time talking to Kathleen. Thanks so much for coming to Word. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I really appreciate it. I hope that readers pick up The Agathas. A lot of adults are enjoying it, too, and the sequel comes out next May, and it's called The Night in Question. You can find out a bit more about the Agathas on our website, word.kjzz.org. We're back in early October with a fresh episode. Portions of this program have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.